0: So I think we're going to start with two clips from the movie Mumia Long Distance Revolutionary and that was produced by Stephen Victoria and myself.
1: I speak from Pennsylvania's death row. A bright, shiny, highly mechanized hell. Mumia Abu-Jamal is one of the lost souls. Of the revolution. Mumia, how are you dealing with all of this darkness and despair and despondency and so forth? He said to me right about it. I'll tell the truth about it. It's a living hell. It's a nightmare. Powerful governments like to control. They love to control.
0: And they're trying to figure out how to shut him down entirely.
1: They have moved heaven and earth to stop his voice being heard in the United States. When you talk about groups that are maligned and slurred as terrorists in the major media, they really are a small fry. They're retail terrorists, wholesale terrorists of the United States government. Problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognizes this while not appearing to. Well they did.
0: Abu Jamal found guilty of murder, could get death for killing off Abu, Abu Jamal, Jamal sentenced to chair his cop killer. Slain officer's wife praises the jury.
1: Guilty as you all, free me, Abu Jamal there were reports being written on him since he was 14 years old. I think it impelled me towards radicalism generally with, of course, the help of the Philadelphia Police Department. Mumia is imitating the first cry of the first slave brought to this country who said no. This is what he's able to do to make what's on CNN the lie that it is and tell it to you with the charisma of, of Malcolm X.
0: And that's dangerous. That's beautiful.
1: What makes Mamia so threatening to many people in the United States is that he is still a revolutionary. And because he has been in jail for so long, the system has not had the opportunity to calm him down on the move. From Death Row, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. A long-distance revolutionary is actually crucial for understanding this case in the context of what is happening to so many people of color, especially men, but also some women. And it it allows us to have a really good glimpse into the prison industrial complex and the, the privatizing of prisons and why there are so many, and why they're so profitable for the people who own them. So I think the movie is really important, not just because it's about Mumia, and that is very crucial, but because it teaches us in a very graphic, very moving way, that we are all Mumia, that what has happened to him could very well happen to any of us. And this is something that I think many people would like to avoid, recognizing because after all there is a spin in our country that because we have a black president you know because people like Oprah are very wealthy and you know, there are all kinds of you know things that are dangled before us I mean there's the illusion that somehow we have made it to the promised land but if two million of us are in prison it's not a promised land you know it's more like a promised hell as Mumia describes it.
0: Let me just start by saying um, three quotes that I have been thinking about a lot lately. The first is by Kevin Rashid Johnson, and is not free because we're not free. When Sundiata Okoli was asked about his pending release or the work to free him, he said, quote, the people will determine when I come home. And then Robert Salim Holberg, who's the executive director, former juvenile lifer of the Abolitionist Law Center, said, we are our own liberators. I'm Mumia's colleague. I've recorded his commentaries since July of 1992. And when those commentaries were censored, by National Public Radio, I went to New York and I worked to publish his first book, Live from Death Row. And so since that time, he's written 13 books. And we've been colleagues ever since. And Prison Radio is the publisher of his latest trilogy, the Murder Incorporated series, which you just saw. Now the title of this presentation is The Path to Freedom for Mumia Abu-Jamal. But I'd like to start first a little bit with who is Mumia Abu-Jamal? So Mumia was born in North Philadelphia, which is what's called now Northern Liberties at 7th and Wallace on April 24, 1954. He's currently 69 years old. He was a really intrepid young man who was had a warm and gracious family. His mother was Edith Louise. His father was Mr. Bill. His older brother was Ronald. His older brother was Keith. His older sister was Lydia. His twin brother was Wayne. And his baby brother was Bill. He went by Wesley Cook. He was the mayor of Philadelphia for a day as a youngster. He performed Shakespeare in the Park. And he went to Benjamin Franklin High School. And he worked to change the name of Benjamin Franklin High School to Malcolm X High School. And one of the first pictures we have of him is with a Malcolm X High School shirt on. During his time in high school, he changed his name to Mumia because he was um, taught by a Kenyan teacher. And he wanted his own name, and not what would be a slave name. When he had his first son, Jamal, he named himself Abu Jamal. So Mumia Abu Jamal is the way he was um, calling himself at that time. At age 14, he became a member of the Black Panther Party in Philadelphia, and he was the Minister of Information. He went, to New, he went to California, and he studied with Judy Douglas, who was the wife then of Emory Douglas. And he learned his trade, and he found his mission. He found reporting. He found the way to write and tell his community's story. And that is who he became in Philadelphia for the next 10 years. Now, who was Mumia at age 26 on December 9th in 1981? He was the president of the Black Journalists Association chapter in Philadelphia. He was a reporter for dozens of radio stations across the Delaware Valley region. He had been a reporter for WHY, which became WHYY. He was a TV reporter. And he was a struggling journalist, because it was difficult for Mumia Abu-Jamal to tell the truth of who he was and what his people were and how he reported these stories as a journalist who was unwilling to varnish the truth, unwilling to not see what he could see. And I'll just tell you a couple of stories about Mumia during that time. When Mumia needed to make money, there was a radio station that wanted him to change his name. And so he went by the name William Wellington Cole (laughs) at one point, another point. He was offered a six-figure job. He was offered a major job at a television station on two conditions: that he would cut his hair and that he would change his name. And when he told his wife that he wasn't going to take the job, you know, that was really serious. He had these opportunities, but he wouldn't compromise. There was one time when he was covering Jimmy Carter running for president and he had was at a news conference. And he asked Jimmy Carter really hard questions. Now, radio reporters in those days didn't have visual appearances. So he wasn't dressed in a suit and a tie. But he was jamming Jimmy Carter about questions about a lot of different things. So he looked over, and he saw his boss giving him the evil eye. He got into the elevator with Jimmy Carter's entourage. They walked down the elevator. And Jimmy turned to him and said, young man, you asked me some really important questions. Jimmy Carter's entourage got off the stage, off of the elevator. And his boss turned to him and said, Jimmy Carter just saved your ass because I was about to fire you. (laughs) So those are the kinds of pressures that Mumia faced. And uh, I interviewed recently William Zimmering, Bill Zimmering, who is the founder of National Public Radio, the founder of All Things Considered, and who hired Mumia at WHYY. And he said his pipes were golden. He was amazing. He cared about the people. He went to tell the stories that were really important, and he brought them back. So there are these stories about Mumia driving a cab. But he was a working journalist. He was struggling. He had three children at that time, at the age 26. Jamal, Latifah, and Mazie. And so when he was driving a cab that fateful night on December 9, 1981, he pulled up to let off a cab late at night at 13th and Locust in downtown Philadelphia in the Red Light District. And he saw across the street and across a corner of a park his brother's VW Bug. And he saw his brother being beaten by a police officer. Mumia ran across the street and was shot by that police officer. He fell to the ground, and he was arrested then for the murder of the officer. So that was what happened to Mumia in 1991. He was plucked out of his community, taken away, and put in prison. I met Mumia 11 years later. And Mumia had not recorded for broadcast at that point. He had done a lot of writing. He had been in the Yale Law Journal. He had been writing for the Scoop magazine. He had been trying to reach out. But the conditions of his confinement on death row in Pennsylvania were severe. He couldn't have visits, he couldn't have phone calls, and he was prevented a lot from communicating with journalists. So it was very difficult for Mumia in those moments. So in July of 1992, I went to visit him because I was a reporter for KPFA Radio in Berkeley, California, and we were covering an execution in California. And I needed someone to be speaking from death row. And that execution of Robert Alton Harris happened in April of 1992. And we didn't air the voice of one person on death row. And I thought that was journalism that was unacceptable. So I kept searching, and I found Mumia's voice. And I found a scratchy tape of Mumia. And I went out, and I put a microphone in front of him at Huntington State Prison. And I was shocked because he was the most talented radio broadcast person I had ever recorded. And I'd been working for like eight years and recording a ton of people and doing live sound. He was special. He was trained in the radio stations of black journalism in Philadelphia. He had talent, and he had training, and he was amazing. And when I put the microphone in front of him, not having recorded in 11 years, he gave me all the breaks I needed, the one, two, three marks, the. And we were in a non contact visiting room. And I had designed a headset mic to c- capture his voice without the plexiglass background, but it looked like a little funky recording studio. So he's, he imagined, like, we felt like we were recording in a re- radio recording studio. So he's gone on to do 13 books. He's gone on to master three languages French, German, and Spanish. He has just finished his orals for his PhD dissertation, so he now he's all but dissertation, and he's going to get his PhD. And it's 41 years later. He spent 41 years inside prison. So all through that time, we've been advocating for the right for him to have the ability to broadcast his voice and to write. And so I've worked on all of the books, and I've recorded most of the radio commentaries. But it's not only important just to consume Mumia, just to hear him, just to experience him. It's critically important at the same time that we demand his freedom, that we acknowledge that Mumia and so many other of our brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, all of our family members who have been kidnapped and taken, literally kidnapped and taken, like America has the most people in prison of any country on earth. One in 100. One in three black men will do prison time. I mean, that's soul killing. That's culturally devastating. And we need to embrace abolition. And as I've been learning, I've been studying at the WED Bo- Boys Movement School, that abolition is not just about tearing down the prisons. It's also about building what we want to see next. It's about reinvesting in our community. It's about both. And part of that is bringing people home. It's acknowledging what the police have done to us, what the prison industrial complex has taken from us. It's about reparations. It's about giving resources to people. We all know, everyone knows that violence is about the lack of resources. Um, And so. Uh, just a quick example about that. We have a police force in Philadelphia that's 6,500 people, majority white, with probably 10 weeks of education. And they treat black and brown people like a conveyor belt in terms of accessing the resources of that community because they get overtime. Everyone knows it. The city council knows it. The governor knows it. Larry Krasner, the DA, knows it. Everyone knows that the budget problem is the fact that they're arresting poor people who don't have resources and who aren't able to fight back. And we know that, and we have to stop that. And so the police are not there for our protection. They're there to commodify people. They're an extension of slavery. Um, And we have to realize that, identify it, and change it. And I think that we will. Now, Mumia's, uh, about five years ago, and, and, and in fact, not because of Mumia's case. But when I moved from San Francisco to Philadelphia 12 years ago, I knew that I would be censored, and I could not get work as a journalist, and it wouldn't pay well enough. So I used my skills as a private investigator. And then when I was doing cases, and juvenile lifer cases, and innocence cases, I knew there weren't enough defense attorneys to help us. And so I went to law school. So the anti-Alzheimer's project, the uh, older person going to law school, the Alice Lind Memorial project, I got my law degree. So now I'm a lawyer, and I know that we need to actually bring people home. We can't just produce their materials. We can't just be their uh, publishers. We have to also liberate them by any means necessary. And the past to Mumia's freedom will always be a legal component. There will always be the key that turns at the end. But make no mistake, they are going to turn that key whenever it serves them and whenever the people are strong enough to make them. That's what they did with Herman Wallace down in Louisiana. They will always do what they have to do when they have to be moved. And it's not going to be the miracles of the courts or the promise of the Constitution. It's going to be the people demanding what is fair and right, because right now the courts and the judges and the PCRA are all designed to keep people in. They're not designed to fill the promise of habeas corpus or the uh, or what we know to be true. So Mumia, a year and a half ago, put forth evidence that his original witnesses in his case had uh, been paid or were requesting their money for testimony. They had serious evidence of Brady violations, which means they hid it all along. And they had evidence of prosecutorial misconduct, police misconduct, and that was all dismissed by the courts. He's on appeal. So it was dismissed by the lowest courts. He's on appeal to the Superior Court. And it could be that he would be on appeal to the Supreme Court. But he could get a commutation from the governor. He could get a pardon from the governor. There could be legislation that is rewritten to include his category. He is serving life without possibility of parole. And in Pennsylvania, there is no parole for that category. But legislation has been written, which excludes him. But it could be written to include him. And his appeals could eventually go forth. And he could, but those are just keys. Those are what they'll do. It's really about us. It's about our strength, our power. And I want to say that I know that we now have the power. Like, I was really worried for the last couple of decades because I thought we were living in the decades that were just abominable, that we were living in a pot of boiling water that was just getting hotter. But things are changing in Pennsylvania. There is an enormous amount of on-the-ground hope and power. And that is coming from the inside out. The men and women who are coming out are building organizations like the Abolitionist Law Center, Let's Get Free, Amistad Law Project, Human Rights Campaign. They're coming out, and they're building massive power. And how you can feel that? The governor of Pennsylvania, who has aspirations for a presidential nomination, has appointed Robert Salim Holbrook, a juvenile lifer, head of the Abolitionist Law Center, to his transition team. The governor, Josh Shapiro, has endorsed the Socialist Workers' Party candidate, who is an incumbent for city council, against the mainstream Democrats. This is power. These people have elected Krasner, our revolutionary, radical DA, not far enough, but better than we have had before and very courageous. We are changing things. They are suing the Department of Corrections and winning. They're stopping solitary confinement. They're doing petitions to have Allegheny County stop solitary by petition. They are winning. We are winning. And it is going to change. And Mumia is going to come home. And Mumia will come, I hope, on the crest of this power base that's been built. But I can feel it. It's tangible. It's about abolition. And it's happening. And I think it might be time to have questions. But I wanted to leave you on that hopeful note um, that things are changing, things are building. The state will never privilege the fact that we're winning. You're never going to see it on TV. You're never going to have them tell us that we are building an alternative world that is going to overtake them. Um, But they are going to crumble. And we are going to be the solution. And we have to do it both by attacking the industrial complex and by building the world that we need to envision, that we want to live in. And the world I want to live in has Mumia Abu-Jamal as a teacher. You know, I might retire when he gets out, but Mumia's going to teach, because he really loves teaching. And so that's the world I want to live in. And connection. I want to say one other thing about connection. Go to prisons, talk to prisoners, write to prisoners. I was visiting death row many years ago with my 27-year-old when she was a baby. When Miranda was a baby, I took her to death row in San Quentin. And that was one of the most magical experiences that she's had and that I've had. And my relationship with Marvin Shaka Walker was born out of that. It's honoring people's humanities by making the effort to connect with prisoners. And I know many people in this room value that. And that is part of the way that we build. That we build and we listen and we honor them. And we change the world. And by treating them as human beings and by uh, knowing that they are going to be the leaders. I've learned so much through prison radio, but I've been been taught by the people inside. And that has been a gift that I've been given. And I'm not going to also forget that they need to come home.